Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are our psalms for, I think, both this week and next week. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are often treated as one psalm uh, because there is a refrain that runs through both psalms and unites them together. Uh, I continue on these sort of off Sundays in between, uh, you're in between your act study. The Psalms is a good place to go, I think, to, to bring uh, consistency to the Bible teaching time. Let's begin with prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you, Lord, for the gift that you've given to us in your word. Help us in the spirit to understand it well and to apply it to our own life of devotion and commitment and obedience. Uh, together we praise you. We pray for Andrew. Uh, ask for your blessing upon him as he preaches today and for your guidance and help in his life. Guide us now, we ask, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Although I think as a longtime believer, I have been in the Psalms for much of my life, it's in these past oh, year and a half now of seriously studying the Psalms that they have come to mean so much more uh, to me. Uh, and yet even then, I feel there's so much that I don't understand. Uh, so I guess it's a lifelong pursuit. And how I would encourage you in the light of the Psalms, how I encourage myself in the light of the Psalms, is that the Psalms teach me how to pray. They give me words to my feelings and to my emotions uh, that I don't have on my own. And the Holy Spirit, I think, has given us a tool, tool in the best sense of the word, a tool of becoming, uh, not so much a tool of making, but a tool of becoming, and that that guides us into how to approach, how to be before God. And you get the whole range in the Psalms of all the emotions the deep, dark, difficult emotions, as well as the very positive, ecstatic emotions. So you've got the full range. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed a Monday morning study with a group of Adventers uh, that meet in, off Engl in the English village, Mountain Brook. Uh, and we meet from, uh, if I can get the time right, um, 10.30 to 11.45. Uh, or no, 11.15, it's a 45-minute study. And we've worked ourselves up to tomorrow will be Psalm 25. So we've spent 24 weeks together because Psalm 9 and 10 are also a combined psalm. Uh, so we've spent 24 weeks moving through the psalms. I haven't grown tired. You can ask them if they have. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, I'd like to read it in the ESV on your study guide, which I hope you all have, and if you don't, please raise your hand. Uh, on this particular uh, study guide, it's the, it's the NIV. Any others that would like a copy of the study guide? Good. David, you can jump up and do this. <laughs> Anyone else? Let me read it in the ESV. 
It's NIV that's on your study guide. Listen carefully. This is God's word. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, as I say, the psalm gives us a voice, a voice that we probably don't have on our own, a voice to our deepest longings. But it does give us something else, too. And, and this, is the, this is what has really impressed me over the last year, is that I think that the psalms need to be understood in the light of Jesus' prayer life. They are Jesus' prayer book. So he prayed these psalms. And, you know, we, we so often when we read the psalms, we're trying to line them up with the, the Samuel narrative, with the David story often. This is a son of Korah. Uh, the sons of Korah were part of the Levitical tribe. They led in music, just like Asaph. And these are psalms that were penned by Korah, or by a descendant of Korah, of course. Um, and they were responsible for leading the congregation in worship. But what I have found mind-opening, heart-opening, um, has been to think in terms of the psalm in the light of Jesus' life, putting them in sync with the Gospels. And that's opened up a, 
a great way of understanding these psalms and understanding the life of Christ. How did praying Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 impact the life of Jesus? Because he prayed these psalms. They guided his self-understanding. They shaped his perspective in the Spirit. Some commentator has said this psalm is, uh, covers three critical aspects of our of our life, dry, drowned, and disheartened. And in a way, it captures that kind of frank confession, that openness. Book two it begins with Psalm 42, uh, and uh, the Psalms are divided into five books. You can think of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. There's five books of the Psalms. And the distinguishing mark in a lot of the books is the name of God, how God is referred to. The favorite name for God in book one of the Psalms is Yahweh, the Lord God, the covenant God, the covenant-keeping I am God, the loyal love God. Yahweh is the most intimate and personal way that God identifies himself. Well, then that makes you wonder, in book two, it's Elohim. Uh, El being really the most widespread use of the name God in the ancient world, El. Elohim is a plural intensification of that. I used to think that Elohim meant the, kind of a generic, you know, we might speak of the Lord as opposed to God. Uh, God being sort of more generic, more, and I don't think that anymore. Elohim, is the personal intensification of God, is a way of saying in the vocabulary of the world, not just the vocabulary of Israel, but the vocabulary of the world, that this is the God. There is one and only God. And Elohim, the personal intensification of the name of God, signifies that. So in this psalm, Psalm 42, for example, there's, uh, and 43, there's only one use of Elohim. Uh, there's only one use of Yahweh. Um, Elohim, Elohim and Elohim is what is commonly referred to almost 19, 20 times in this psalm. With all those God references in every, almost every phase, in almost every aspect of the psalm, the psalmist has not even though he feels somewhat abandoned and estranged and God isn't paying attention to him, yet all of this is done before God and in the presence of God. All this crying out, all this desire for God is yet ever present in every, almost every syllable of the psalm. It is how we lament. It's how we should express ourselves before the presence of God. I'm at number four. These numbers don't mean anything on the outline. They are just my way of identifying where I am at a certain point. So don't be worried about order uh, or a chronology or a linear understanding. It's just so I can point you at a particular point to where I am. God is referenced repeatedly, and nothing is said, nothing is thought apart from its reference to God. Number five, 42 and 43 give us an interesting inscape. You're familiar with the word landscape. 
Well, our poet Gerard Manley Hopkins coined the term inscape. Landscape gives us a sense of the horizon, and inscape gives us a sense of the essence. And Psalm 42 and 43 are giving us a sense of the essence of the worshiper, the essence of the psalmist. And what is the essence that he begins with? My deep thirst for God. Just think for a moment as to when you really were thirsty. Really were thirsty. The story that comes to my mind is when my son and I were lost in the Sierra Nevada mountains. You know, an urban kid kind of feels that when you're in a national park, you can go, you can always just go in one direction and get out and find your way. Well, Andrew and I were mountain biking, and we had gone above the, the sort of tree level where the ground was really arid and really hard, and so we lost any kind of markings of a trail, and we were just, we were having the greatest time, barreling along the ridge in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Inyo National Forest outside of Mammoth. Uh, this is when we lived in San Diego, and about an hour after we, an hour into our time, I suddenly realized that we had no idea where we were. No idea. And uh, we had long since lost any markings on the trail. And that's when it dawned on me that you really could get lost in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Up until that point, I didn't think that was possible. Well, um, Virginia had expected us after an hour, um, and she called the ranger, um, which it's good she did. Um, <laughs> four hours later, and you know we had brought no water. Uh, we were really salt-stained around our eyes, our jeans, our clothes, all markings of, of salt, and really dehydrated, and we met another biker and the biker said, oh, you're the one that the rangers are looking for. <laughs> and he gave us water and pointed us in the right direction. We met the ranger on the trail. He asked me, uh, what, uh, what's your vehicle? What vehicle were you driving? And I could not for the life of me remember what kind of car we had. Uh, I was really thirsty. Most of us might think of thirst in terms of coming out of an operation. That's one of the most, I think, uh, immediate sensations that we've often had, having been out and having been operated on, and we come to and, and we're really thirsty. Um, I don't know if you've ever really experienced being thirsty for God. A couple weeks ago, a friend uh, here at the Advent um, wanted to get together to talk. And um, I said, well, sure. And we arranged to meet at O'Henry's. And then he called me the day before we were scheduled to meet. And he said, really can't meet at O'Henry's because lately I've been bawling so much that I'll just embarrass you and myself. And so we met at my office. 
And that sort of takes us to the second water image. Uh, number seven on your uh, study guide. Uh, we live in a dry and weary land, and the human soul naturally thirsts for God, but we may not be conscious that our longings and our desires can only be met by God. So when we speak of thirst, it may not seem that you really are thirsting for God. You're thirsting for something else. Craig referred to the, the money, sex, and power. Um, our hearts really do desire. They long. They yearn. We often do not realize that the object of that yearning, the object of that desire is our creator, our redeemer, our Lord. Think of the encounter that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman recorded for us in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. And, and he uses this image of thirst um, as an analogy for you know, the physical thirst being an analogy for our spiritual thirst. You wonder, was he praying Psalm 42 that day? How the longing of the human soul for God is expressed through the analogy of, through the metaphor of thirst. Number eight, the psalmist cry is desperate, followed by a painful description. My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? My friend, um, we can't meet at O'Henry's because I'm bawling so much that I'll embarrass myself and you. My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me. And the beautiful thing of this person's fears, of this person's tears, was that uh, before we met, God had done such a work in his life that he realized that it really was God that he was longing for. One of those beautiful moments when, when being a pastor is rewarded by nothing you say, nothing you do, but you're just at the site to bear witness and to hear the testimony. And that's just a wonderful place to be. Um, but his tears hadn't stopped. Uh, they still were his food day and night. Uh, God was doing such a wonderful work in his heart and life. The comment by uh, theologian Cyril Okarukta, uh, number nine, Anglican bishop in Nigeria, who uh, is responsible for doing the Psalms in the African commentary. Um, and he makes this comment, and I would just underscore it for us. This psalm was written by someone who felt great loneliness and depression. As such, it summons us to identify those in our community who feel this way and take action on our own and along with our families and churches to help them. Matthew Henry, in the 1700s, a Presbyterian pastor in England, uh, who also worked through the Psalms intensely, makes a very similar comment, saying to the effect, maybe you're not here right now in that kind of intense emotion and that sense of, uh, and I, you know, it'd be great if you're not here in a way. And this is a painful place to be. Uh, it's 
not something to be wished on anybody, to feel this way, to be downcast in one's soul. But if you don't feel this way, be assured that there are people in the household of faith here at Advent that do feel this way. And our bishop brother in Nigeria is counseling that we be sensitive to such people within our family of faith and that we reach out to them, we support them, we pray with them, that they not feel alone in the midst of it. Be assured that this is the prayer of someone. And uh, they may not have the words to articulate it this way, but that's the benefit of the psalm. Um, Verse 4, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them to the procession of the house of God. An interesting part of this psalm is that the psalmist remembers a much better time remembers when there was great joy and great fulfillment in uh, leading the people in worship. I think that's wonderful that, uh, because when one is depressed and downcast, it's easy to kind of rewrite the past history and not to see in that experience how good God has been. But the psalmist here goes back to a time when God's been really good It's been wonderful to be involved in worship. But now he feels so distant and remote. But he does not escape this. Number 11, the refrain is repeated three times in slightly different ways. That's what unites Psalm 42 and and 43, the conclusion of the fifth verse. "Why Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, we've got to stop for a few moments and kind of scrutinize the refrain that's repeated three times. We have to think about this, I think. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? What's happening here? What's happening here is the person is talking within herself. The person is talking within himself and asking, why are you downcast? Why so disturbed? And what does the person do within this internal inscape dialogue? How does the person respond? Now, I've read commentators that say, well, as long as you're talking to yourself, you're never going to get relief. But I don't buy that. I think this is really very healthy self-talk. This is the individual before the presence of God talking to herself about herself and about the situation, asking Probing, why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed? And then, talking to herself, put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my God and my Savior. The translations are difficult here because the idea of I will praise him, my Savior and my God, is literally salvation from his face. 
the word face is in there. As if to say, to come before the face of God. I want to see your face. Now, translate that in terms of human loneliness and wanting to see the face of a loved one. Nothing short of the physical, real presence and the face of that loved one will satisfy the longing. And this is what the psalmist is saying. I've got to see your face. But I find it encouraging that we can actually talk to ourselves before the presence of God about placing our hope in God. That that kind of inner dialogue, that kind of inscape is very important to have that kind of self-awareness and self-discussion. Why am I so downcast? Why am I so disturbed? Doug, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, that would imply that there's some responsibility on our part to carry on this kind of conversation, to carry on that kind of dialogue. Um, Getting a grip, understanding who we are, our identity in Christ, Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A life covered by God's grace. Uh, My friend and colleague, Robert Smith, who we together teach preaching at Beeson Divinity School, uh, his son was murdered in uh, 2010, 2010, and... uh, on October 30th, and his mother, uh, Robert's mother, must be pretty up there in age, but still always hosts the, com- the, the extended family for Thanksgiving, lives a half mile from the fast food restaurant where her grandson, where Robert's son was working late at night. It was a robbery that went bad. The cash register jammed. He couldn't open the cash register. Uh, a gun was being waved in his face. And uh, ended up shooting him. And Tony staggered out of the restaurant, collapsed in the parking lot. Um, and Robert wrote a book on Psalm 42 through 43. And one of the things that um, I find powerful about the Psalms and about Robert is that one's life can be vital and strong and really placed one's hope in God and yet still struggle with the depressed, discouraged heart and hope. I mean, these two things are not... um, unreconcilable. It may be a paradox, but there's a sense in which um, great faith, great trust, great hope can be placed in juxtaposition with great pain, with discouragement, with trouble. And so it can be a sustained prayer where one is constantly asking, oh my soul, why are you so troubled? Why are you so disturbed? Put your hope in God. 
I think we uh, send the wrong message if we act as if this is really highly unusual that one would be split with this kind of tension. I'm going to read what he writes about the ongoing pain of the situation of having lost a son. Since October 30th, 2010, I've driven to my mother's house many times. The most convenient way to get my mother's to get to my mother's house from my home is to go past the restaurant where Tony was killed and to make a left-hand turn at the street where my mother resides. Not one time have I been able to drive past that restaurant. I always take the long way around, make many different out-of-the-way turns to get to my mother's house. The wound is too tender, the sight too painful for me to look at the restaurant and to see the counter through the front glass where our son's murderer stood firing one shot into his body and extinguishing the flame of Tony's life, and to pass by the parking lot where Tony collapsed soon thereafter. Perhaps someday, perhaps someday I will be able to go into the parking lot, stand over the place where Tony passed away from death to life. Holidays and other particular days are difficult now. Christmas, Easter, birthdays, Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, Independence Day, weddings and funerals especially October 30th. This experience has become a door. This experience has become a door through which I have walked into the abounding love of Christ and not a wall that restrained me from discovering wholesome forgiveness. We live the Christian life oftentimes right in the context of Psalm 42. Real hope, real trust, real dependence on the grace of God, but also real struggle, real pain, real thirst, and tears that never stop. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, I haven't gotten it all. I'm going to stop here and take questions or comments or testimony uh, from you. Uh, I did plan to do Psalm 42 and 43 on the two Sundays, so that I think was probably a good plan um, because we haven't even really gotten to where the psalmist is going, to the northern part of Israel, and that's where I think it connects really well with Jesus' life and ministry in the Gospels. So that's coming next week. Um, you can also read up on it with this study guide, and you could bring that back, but I'll bring extra copies for tomorrow. So any comments, questions that you have in the light of this psalm? How do you reconcile kind of, you know, this idea of this you know, horrible anxiety can be part of your kind of Christian life with kind of, you know, Jesus's exhortations in, say, Matthew, where he talks about worry and don't let the, you know, the, don't worry about tomorrow, you know, because today's got trouble enough, kind of that, those kind of messages. 
Well, you even kind of help to answer that question by Jesus limiting the range of worry. You know, okay, today is sufficient thereof. Focus on this. Uh, I, I think that this is quite compatible with his Sermon on the Mount, command, do not worry, um, because I think that is a corollary of that hope that's placed in God. You're, you're self-telling yourself. Place your hope in God, which is really kind of compatible with, I can't be worried about this. I've got to put this in the hands of God. I have no other recourse really to do that, but do that. So I think that it's really quite consistent. Yeah. Um, it's, I think just there's a follow-up here. David? I think it's, you know, I, I think it's kind of interesting to think about Jesus teaching this psalm, especially to uh, the apostles, knowing the trouble, you know, knowing the trouble mm-hmm. that they were going to have. You know, there's no way they could have gone through the trials they were going to go through without being right in the middle of this kind of despair and anxiety. So. It's a great New Testament psalm, isn't it? I mean, it really puts us into the Christian life as it's meant to be lived. Good point. Anything I've said that's confusing? It's you don't my have to understanding. <laughs> it's my understanding that uh, King David is uh, credited with uh, the penmanship through the Holy Spirit on many of the Psalms. Uh, who is credited with the uh, penmanship on uh, these? This, uh, the sons of Korah. Um, and there's a number of Psalms right in this row of the 40s that are credited to this Levitical tribe. If you remember the name Korah, Korah is the family that was devastatingly swallowed up by the earth because of their antagonism to Moses. So here's a descendant of Korah yet, part of the redemption, I guess, um, that that Levitical tribal line continued, and they served as musicians, choir masters. Uh, The superscriptions on all the Psalms, you know, are not Holy Scripture, but they are a reflection of tradition. And so the tradition has it that the sons of Korah contributed this particular Psalm, uh, we'll also have it with Asaph, another musician, again in the Levitical line. So that's, the, that's what I know. And maybe um, I, I think it's an indication, too, that it's not just David, but the Holy Spirit worked through others giving us the Psalter. Thank you. Um, you mentioned um, about uh, us helping others in, in mm-hmm. using the Psalms to do that. And one of the things I would emphasize is that home groups are probably one of, home groups are probably one of those areas where our home group has just experienced a tragedy. Uh, uh, a couple they lost their daughter a week ago, and the funeral was this, you know, this yesterday. And so I'm saying that that's you know as a family, as you were talking about us supporting and doing, and when we had been studying psalms as well, but that is a way that we can we didn't necessarily say anything, but you can cry and be sort of agree that why has this happened and then mm-hmm. say, but God. And so at, at a practical level, I think that's what the church family should be encouraged to that's, be. It's such an excellent point. Uh, I mean, there's a temptation here at the Advent for us to come in, stream in and stream out and uh, hardly make eye contact. Uh, 
and in doing so, then we're really not the church. The church involves this sort of personal engagement. I think it's hard for us. It's, uh, Westerners are so autonomously oriented, so individualistically inclined, uh, and so preservative of our own private space. Um, but home groups, Bible study groups, psalm classes, you know, uh, ways of getting to know one another is just so important. That's why I, used, I like using the phrase household of faith. Um, let's uh, shrink the cathedral down to a kind of relational understanding that, that's helpful. One more. Amen. Amen. Lord God, please make us sensitive to people within the body that do need encouragement, and, and, and this psalm prayed for on their behalf. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.